0: On Christmas morning at home in England, I climb into the loft space above the bathroom in search of some presents I'd wrapped months earlier. The ladder I'm using is wooden and has only two legs, which slip on my freshly waxed floor. I fall from a height of nine feet and land with a bang on my left side, fracturing eight ribs. As I lie on the floor, stunned and in the greatest pain of my life, it occurs to me that I might die before Trump assumes office, and that maybe that won't be such a terrible thing. Amy runs out of the guest room then, and Hugh charges up the stairs from the kitchen, both of them asking, What happened? And are you all right? I don't want to ruin Christmas, so say I'm fine. I'm fine. Fine people, though, don't need ten minutes to get up off the floor. Hugh phones the NHS, and after being asked a number of preliminary questions, I'm put through to a nurse named Mary. Who are you again? I ask. Mary, she repeats, not, I notice, Mary Stewart or whatever her last name is. Everything in America is based on lawsuits, on establishing a trail. In the United States, I'd be told to come in immediately for x-rays, but in England, they figure that unless you're unconscious or leaking great quantities of fluid, blood, puffs, etc., there's no point in wasting everyone's time. Mary asks me a number of questions to determine whether I pierced a lung, which apparently I have not. But it really hurts when I cough, I tell her. Well, David, she says brightly, then my advice to you would be not to cough and to have a lovely Christmas. That's the voice
1: of David Sedaris reading from his latest book, Calypso, frequently referred to as the supreme living humorist in the United States. Not only is Sedaris a best-selling author with 7 million books in 25 languages currently in print, he fills enormous venues for his live performances. He commands the airwaves as a contributor to radio programs and as a chat show regular. He also picks up rubbish in rural Britain, and he's here in the studio with me. David, welcome. Thank you.
0: I think it's 10 million books. 10 million? I think that's what I hear. That's what I hear.
1: Is that now a bit strange? Do you look back at your early life and think, how did that
0: happen? No, I do. I mean, I don't know where that figure came from, but I started hearing it a few years ago. (laughs) So it sounds good to me. So I always correct people when I get lower than that. But uh, no, it never occurred to me. Just the same way it never occurs to me, I meet students who had to write a paper about me, and I think that really never occurred to me because that's awful, and I feel pretty bad about that because you can't enjoy reading something if you have to turn around and write a paper about it. One guy, though, he had his students listen to one of my audiobooks or a part of my audiobook, and they were talking about it afterwards, and one kid said, I just feel sorry for the old lady. And he said, what old lady? He said, the old lady that they, they had to read the book out loud. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you make this point in
0: your, in your most recent book that actually people often
1: mistake your voice f- for a woman.
0: When I'm in a hotel and I call down, they always say, well, have that right up, ma'am. Always. And I didn't think I sound like a woman. I sound like a Muppet, right? <laughs> but then somebody came up to me a while ago and said, no, you don't sound like a woman or a, like a Muppet. You sound like Piglet. And I think they were talking about Piglet from the Winnie the Pooh, you know, the earlier Winnie the Pooh Mm. programs, which I love Piglet's voice, so I'm fine with that. But now apparently I'm a she-Piglet. I sound like a she-Piglet.
1: I wonder what your family think of that and if any of them sound similar. I
0: know that uh, they've obviously always been a rich source of material for you. Um, My brother's car broke down. And he called for a tow truck, and the guy said, "We'll be right out, sweetie." <laughs> my brother <laughs> was not just a woman, but a sweetie. And my dad's voice is really soft. My father has a really beautiful voice, I think. It's soft. it's a little bit deeper, and he doesn't have a linear little trace of a lisp. It's just very nice. I think it's his best quality.
1: Your appreciation of the qualities of your five siblings seems to shift. There are a lot of changes in family relationships that you describe in in your book. Sometimes you're two, sometimes you're a quartet
0: against the others. I think when you come from a large family, especially, that changes a lot. I'm close with everyone in my family, but I take turns being somebody's best friend. And then it's not like we have a fight. It just kind of morphs move over with somebody else for a while and then move back again. But it's always in in flux.
1: You've talked in this book about the suicide of your sister, Tiffany, and I wonder how people should move on from tragedy. Should we we answer questions truthfully? For instance, no, no, there are five of us, not six of us any longer, and face that potential awkwardness? Or there's a conflict, obviously, between truth and social conventions.
0: Right. If I knew that it would make the conversation awkward, I would just pretend like my sister was still alive. I notice now that if somebody says to me, my husband died not long ago, I say, why did he die? And so I tend to ask questions about it because I think there's a reason they brought it up. Mm. And usually I I find people are pretty glad to talk about it just because it can be so awkward and it can be so, especially if it's a, you know, something like suicide that makes people feel like they have to walk on eggshells.
1: Mm. There's a, another social convention asking questions to which one really isn't interested in the answer and you have
0: some wonderful passages you write about that Oh well because I go on these tours in the United States and so I, I'll go to like 42 cities in 44 days and so you know you go to the hotel and they say uh, how's, your, how's your trip in? So where are you coming in from? Welcome in Are you here for business or pleasure? Business. I hope you save some time for pleasure. It's like the same conversations every day, and I just just can't take it anymore. But I was in Chicago recently, and when you land in Chicago, if you have a car, like a driver, waiting for you, now you're met by a greeter. And so a greeter is just another level of small talk and another person you have to tip, and they meet you at the baggage carousel, and then they lead you to your car. But I had this greeter, and she asked how my trip in was, and then she was, how was your flight? And then she was kind of dead to me. But because she asked that question, but I just loved her look. She looked like she'd been kicked to the airport. So I started asking her questions, and she said, Welcome to Chicago. She said, We got some great food here. And I said, I used to live in Chicago, but I I said, I really like what? Hamburgers and hot dogs. (laughs) French fries. uh, We got great food (laughs) I would hire her to do like a Chicago tourism thing. I would <laughs> hire. Her. Oh, I'd love seeing the city through her eyes. I see that was okay if you can just get somebody off track and have, you know, a conversation. So, you know, I'm more apt to ask somebody, "Do you have any friends in wheelchairs?" Right. Good question. And so I asked this woman, "Do you have any friends in wheelchairs?" And her mother was in a wheelchair the entire time she was growing up, and she had to be her mother's slave. And then she went to college, and her mother had an operation and could walk again. And it wasn't like she could walk with two canes. She just walked like anybody. And so this woman was furious because she devoted her whole childhood. Isn't that that great? It's extraordinary. If I had said, how are you? I never would have known that. Yeah. I love the bit you
1: described talking about a, a hotel check-in clerk, and you ask about the godson.
0: Because <laughs> that's another question: Do you have a godson? You know? Which is
1: not a question. Let's be frank: that most people would think to ask a complete stranger. No, but it's a good question. Yeah. So
0: this, this, I was checked into a hotel, and the woman said, "How is your light in?" And I said, "You know, that's such a nothing question. Why not ask? Do you have a godson?" And she said, "Okay, do you have a godson?" I said, "I do. He's six years old, and his name's Tommy." And then she gave me that little smile and said, oh, that's nice. And then I said, he has cancer. And she said, poor thing. And I said, that's okay. I'm sure someone else will ask me to be a godfather. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't really have cancer, but I thought (laughs) I loved making it about myself.
1: Are your siblings like you? Do they have the same
0: wicked humor? They do. Every last one of them. It's a pleasure to spend time with them.
1: I love the way you say that Google reacts differently
0: to your internet searches. It's crazy. My sister Amy's computer, I mean, we typed what does a 50-year-old woman look like into her computer because I think she was turning 50. And you'd think she had typed in what does the inside of a 50-year-old woman. I couldn't believe the pictures that came up on Google. And if when I did it it was a picture of Brooke Shields smiling. <laughs> I <laughs> Amy's computer just has a filthy mind I don't know how that happens Amy
1: has on occasion written with you but mostly you're the writer of the family when did you know that that
0: was what you wanted to, to be? I started writing one day when I was 20 I just started one day I didn't know if you'd said beforehand that I was going to start writing tomorrow I would have said, you're crazy And then you can't really write in a vacuum, you know. You have to read. So, and it was the same time I started reading for pleasure. But I remember I was 25, and I was riding my bike. I had a flat tire on my bike in Raleigh, North Carolina. Took it to get the tire fixed, and I read a short story by Bobby Ann Mason called "Shiloh." When I was waiting for my bike to get fixed, I was riding home, and I said to myself, "I want to be a writer." Because you kind of have to announce it to yourself. I mean, it's spooky, it's scary, because then if you fail, you failed. You said you wanted to do something. You could tell all the world that you want that, and then if you fail, you failed. But if you tell yourself, it's the same thing. Mm. If you tell yourself you want to do it. But, you know, wanting to be a writer, anybody who wants to be a writer can be a writer. All you have to do is write. It's really simple. I mean... I think people confuse that with being a published writer mm. or with being an author. If you want to write, all you have to do is write. And, of course, you did become enormously successful, but not
1: before having done a load of low skill jobs, including, of course, the the story that you wrote up that really made it all happen for you, which was being an elf in Santa's grotto in Macy's.
0: Well, i just moved to New York and I needed a job. It wasn't like... I did it for a laugh or anything. I don't have any skills, and they were hiring short people, and I'm short, and so I applied and they hired me, and I did it, actually did it for two years, and I kept a diary. You know, I've been keeping a diary forever, so that was the first thing I had on the radio in the United States was a diary of the time that I worked as an elf. You also perform
1: live, do you think that your work's best when you read aloud? And I wonder if you have a a differing relationship with the work on the page, the spoken word, radio, and live audiences.
0: Well, I think because people were used to hearing me on the radio, they wanted to hear me read out loud. But if you're on the radio, people want you to read to them. Like, I don't want to read Harry Potter. I want Stephen Fry to read Harry Potter Mm. to me, right? I don't want to read anything by Garrison Keillor. I want Garrison Keillor to read it to me. And I'm happy to do that. I started reading out loud, you know, when, when, you know when you're in school and, and you have to read a book and the teacher realizes that nobody read it. So you kind of read it out in class and she calls on people to read. And I just always thought like, me, call on me, call on me. And I didn't want to be an actor. I didn't want to memorize it. I just wanted to read it out loud. There's some programs where they've read some of my actors will read stuff I've written. And often they're so actorly that you, it's all about them being an actor and you can't hear the words anymore. Whereas like The New Yorker has a version of The New Yorker for blind people. And it's just like they went on the street and they handed the magazine to somebody and said, would you read this out loud for us? Because the person, they're clearly reading it for the first time. It's not like they stumble, but they don't know what's coming. And they're not actorly in any way. And so you can hear that word next to that word next to that word. And I can listen to that and I can learn from that. Whereas if it's an actor, it's hard for me to see beyond the acting.
1: You go off scripts too in your public. I'm going to call them performances. Would you call them performances? Sure. Uh, And I just loved reading that you got a load of people to give you a lot of money and got your computer fixed. Tell me about
0: that. Well, I always feel like if you're in the audience, the audience can solve a lot of your problems, right? So a couple of years ago, I was on tour, and I got it was like a migraine in my face. And so someone said, you have a sinus infection. You need antibiotics. So I asked the audience, is there a doctor in the house? And of course there was. Can you write me a prescription for antibiotics? Anyway, it turned out I needed a root canal. Not that. but. I met a woman after that, and she just had some dental work done, and they didn't give her any medication. So I said, I'll get you some. And so I did the reading, and I said, anyone with painkillers, come right to the front of the book signing line. Gave her a big fistful of Percocet and Vicodin, you know, at the end of the night. We had a computer problem. and Say, "Is anybody work at the Apple store? Can you come up here, come to the front of the line? It's great. It's a great resource. I don't abuse it, but... I mean, you know, if they're there, why not? Free surgery. I did get some free surgery, it <laughs> too. <laughs> I was complaining because I had this tumor, and it was benign. It's a lipoma. And I wanted to feed it to a snapping turtle. Because As you do. Well, they'll, they'll eat anything. And why let it go to waste? I mean, really, when you think about it, right? This woman in America got into big trouble a couple of years ago because someone lost her foot in a car accident. And she brought it home and used it to train her dog. And she got into huge trouble. And I remember thinking like what have they given her such a hard time about? It wasn't like they could sew the foot back on. And I guess the owner was like, you're disrespecting my foot. I mean please. So I wanted to feed my tumor to a snapping turtle. And so this woman came up and said, I'll cut it out of you. She said, I'm not a surgeon, but I am a doctor. And I think I can do this, and if we start and it seems like it's too much for me, I'll sell you back up and send you on your way. And I really liked her, and so we did it, and she cut it out of me and sent it on ice to North Carolina, and I fed it to a turtle. Is there any space that you wouldn't go to? Is there anything in comedy
1: that is absolute? taboo. And I wonder how you respond to people who are offended by stories perhaps like that or shocked by your jokes or your lighthearted way in, in
0: dealing with events. Well, people who were offended, I mean, there's a story in the book about my sister Lisa was 12 years old and riding with my father in the car and a black man exposed himself to them, right? And so my father turned around so they could see it again. And so I read that, and this woman in the theater, who was white, said, why did you have to say he was black? And I said, well, it was 1968 in North Carolina. And this was a a British woman who asked. Said it was 1968 in North Carolina. And I'm not saying it's fair, but in 1968 in North Carolina, a black man exposing himself to a 12-year-old white girl meant more than a white man doing it, you know. And so it makes my father's reaction even funnier that he would turn around to see it again. And she said, well, when you're saying that somebody's black, you're saying that everybody else is white. And I said, yeah, you know, unless I say otherwise. But it's the writer's world. If a black writer got up and said a white woman came to the door, he's trying to paint a picture and just... I don't even think that people know what is racist anymore. You know what I mean? I think they just hear any mention of race or nationality, and they're like, wait a minute, is that, what is he saying? Is that is he allowed to say that? And it's like, yeah, I'm allowed to say it. I'm not saying anything. You can't even guess anymore what people are going to be offended by. I mean, I, I wrote this essay about cursing in other languages. And in the Netherlands, if somebody cuts you off on your bike or whatever, you call them a cancer whore or a tuberculosis whore, which is so weird to me that you would stitch those two words together. So I got a letter from a woman and said, my son has cancer, and I brought him to see your show, and you're up there using the word cancer as a laugh line. I was talking about what happens in the Netherlands. I mean, I didn't write her back. She's clearly in pain, and I'm really sorry her son has cancer, but I was talking about cursing, and that's what they say in the Netherlands. But it doesn't stop you. You don't, before you write, think, oh, I
1: need to just... Check whether this is going to offend people or not. I mean, you just no. go right ahead.
0: I mean, I think you look into your heart and you say, "Am I trying to hurt somebody? Am I trying to make somebody feel small?" You know, that's a bit different. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get offended. See, that's the thing. Like, I wrote this thing about I didn't like Chinese food. I don't like Chinese food. I don't like it. When oh, I go to a Chinese restaurant, I mean, I'll eat it but I'm not going to get excited about it. It's just not my favorite food. Then someone said that was racist for me to say that I don't like Chinese food. And then I was interviewed by this guy, and he was Korean-American, and he said, well, he said, and I said, do you think it was racist of me? He said, well, sometimes I bring my lunch to work, and people will complain about the smell, and that's really hurtful to me. I said, man, try living in France. I mean, all the comments I had to hear about American food when I was in France... It didn't hurt me any. I mean, you have a pretty good life, if that's the most upsetting thing, is that somebody says your lunch stinks. That's a great life you're leading.
1: People are quite critical of American food, and here in particular, I think, as well as France, but you now live here. You spend most of the year here in,
0: in Britain. Why? Why are you here? Why? Are you, why? <laughs> I didn't mean to come here. I lived in France, but I was never a francophile. I just wound up there. I started doing some things on the BBC and came over, and we met some people, and we liked them, and started spending more time here. And then I got my papers. I got indefinite leave to remain. I'd take a course called Life in the UK. I'd take a test. In what year did women get the vote? What do people eat on Christmas? You passed. I did, and I realized too. You know how hard that would be for some people. I mean, that was a cheat question, you know, on my part. I mean, it was an easy one, but for other people, they didn't wouldn't even know really what Christmas is, let alone what people eat on Christmas. You Do know, you think it's important? Do people need to know that to live here? No, I mean, <laughs> well, what if they had the wrong thing on Christmas? Yeah, well they like... stop
1: being a citizen <laughs> if you don't eat turkey? You can't be British.
0: Well, it was interesting, the questions. I mean, I always thought what a British person would think looking at the list of questions. Some of the questions I don't think the average person could answer.
1: You passed the test. You're here. You write towards the end of Calypso, your latest book, and in fact you read a little section from this bit about reasons you're depressed. And, uh, of course, like the rest of us, it's
0: Trump. Yeah. You know, it's interesting... I was all up on the news, you know, read several newspapers a day and listen to things. And, but then I just finished a book tour in the United States, and the book tour was really pretty packed, right? And I fell out of the news. I'm at the point now where I th- I'm thinking, like, maybe what would happen if I stayed out? You know, because it was so exhausting to try to keep up with it all. You know, my friend Ted in Phoenix, he had a bumper sticker, a Obama sticker on his car. And he lived in, uh, in Arizona. And he would come out of the grocery store and there'd be someone standing next to his car with his arms crossed saying, how's that working out for you, shithead? And Ted would say, great, actually, now that you ask. But see, if I went to my father and said, how's this working out for you? He would say, great. I mean, there are a great many people who have no problem with Donald Trump whatsoever. And it's just weird that you can live in the same country as them, or be in the same family as them. I think for a while I was one of those people that was holding out hope that he was going to get impeached, but that's not going to happen. The best you can hope for is that he won't be re-elected.
1: Do you think it's the job of, of people like you, or the duty, perhaps, of people like you who can lampoon things you can lance societal boils with humor to do so to bring him down by making us guffaw
0: well i think there were probably weeks at a time when obama didn't even make the newspaper and with trump every day it's five things that he's done and so often i find an american audience is like can we go five minutes without talking about him we're here to escape him
1: Mm.
0: we all know that we hate him everybody in this room hates him we know that can we move on for the next hour. And also I don't want to pander to my audience. He's a great comic figure. It's amazing like that guy can get away with anything and just his look and his his limited vocabulary and his clear disinterest in the issues and he's huge and people love him. You know, I think a lot of it is like he was on TV. We saw him on TV. But I look at those people and I always think, you know, it's not that hard to get on TV. Mm.
1: I guess living here, you feel somewhat removed from it. And, of course, the other thing you do, aside from write, is pick up rubbish. Tell us about that.
0: Well, when we moved to uh, West Sussex, I guess I just didn't notice it when we bought our house. But then I was walking to the village a couple of days later and I thought, what, did a parade just come through here? And so we wrote to the council the council invited us to a meeting of the Clean and Tidy Advisory Board. And everything I suggested, they had a reason why it couldn't happen. So I just thought, fine, I'll do it myself. So I go out every day, depending on the season, from four to eight hours a day, and I pick up rubbish on the side of the road. And people, I think a lot of them think that I'm crazy. Maybe I am. I was in the United States a couple of days ago when I saw a man my age out there with a grabber by the side of the road, and I thought, it's me. Look, it's like the local version of me. So I must be a type. If I lived anywhere, I'd be happy to see my type there. This woman, though, I was cleaning, her house looked abandoned to me. I couldn't believe how much rubbish was in her front yard, so I picked it all up. And then she came from behind a hedge and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm picking up all this rubbish in your yard. And she said, oh, thank goodness. I was going to call the council. And I said, that's okay, I got it. And I tied off the bag, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm leaving the bag here, and I'm going to call the council, and they'll come and pick it up. She said, no, you can't leave the bag in my yard. I said, I can collect all the rubbish from your yard, but I can't leave the bag that it's in here? No. Put it in their yard over there. <laughs> I wanted to empty all the trash in her yard again, but then it wouldn't be clean. See what I mean? Like, I have to... They, I have this compulsion, so it has to be clean. Anyway, a couple months later, I'm there again. She's standing in her front yard, and she says, there's some rubbish over there. I said, then pick it up. That's the good thing about being 61, is I never would be rude to an old person, ever. And I know you shouldn't talk this way about yourself, but I have pretty good manners. You wouldn't think it, but I do. And so I would never be mean to an old person. But now old people are just 20 years older than me. And I'm like, shut the fuck up. (laughs) That's how I say to old people now, get the hell out of my way. I mean, I say whatever I want because they're practically my contemporaries, right? If a 20-year-old talked like that way, I'd scold him and I'd say, you have no right talking, you know, but bring it on. But there's still the garbage chuck that's named after you. There is a garbage truck that's named after me, and that's a huge honor. Also, I got invited to Buckingham Palace just based on the rubbish I've picked up. And so I went, and I saw the queen. I didn't meet her, but I was about eight feet away from her. and She was tiny. It was a day when she invites do-gooders. It was interesting to see how there were two people that weren't dressed up, and I thought, okay, if this isn't a dress-up occasion... I don't know what is Um, and everybody was wearing new shoes and they were hobbling, hobbling and I was hobbling as well and there was a little grassy area and people would take their shoes off and just oh and I looked down and I saw so many bloody feet.
1: David Sedaris, I wish you luck in your footwear and your rubbish collection and you certainly don't need it for your astonishing career. Thanks so much for talking to us.
0: Thank you, Georgina.
1: David's latest book, Calypso, is published by Little Brown and is out now. The Big Interview is produced by Yolene Goffin and edited by Cassie Galpin. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.